If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. For more than 3,000 years, the ancient Egyptians adhered to a complex and rich system of beliefs. Worshipping a vast pantheon of mighty, often animal-headed gods and goddesses. But how did this dynamic religious system emerge? What was the pharaoh's role in rituals? And what did the ancient Egyptians believe happened to them in the afterlife? In our latest Everything You Want to Know episode, Egyptologist Joyce Tildesley speaks to Danny Bird to answer your questions on the mysteries of religion in ancient Egypt. Joyce, thank you very much for joining me today to discuss religion in ancient Egypt. And I'd like to start us off by asking a very general question, which is, what did the ancient Egyptians believe in? Thank you for inviting me to talk on this subject. It's such an interesting subject, but it's such a difficult one as well. As far as we can tell, all the Egyptians worshipped some form of gods. But who you worshipped depended so much on where you lived and when you lived and what your parents believed that... No two Egyptians really believed the same thing. It was a very, very flexible religion and um, people really worshipped how and who they wanted to worship. So what did they believe in? Yes, they believed in gods and goddesses and what we might call demigods, but you can't really say everybody had the same rituals, everybody had the same belief. It was a very individual thing. So we have a question here from franchise underscore 505 on Instagram, and they would like to know, how do we know what the ancient Egyptians believed in? Well, the ancient Egyptians have left us a lot of evidence about what they believed in. Unfortunately, what we would love to have and what we don't have is just a handbook, a textbook. We don't have really any books of detailed ritual even. 
but we have on temple walls, we have some writings, we have papyri that particularly went into tombs with people that tell us what they believed. We have artifacts, religious artifacts, statues, and so on. And we have the temples, of course, themselves. And by combining all these things together, we can get a really good idea of what the individual Egyptians believed. And so the archaeological record is primarily the resource for what we know the ancient Egyptians were doing with religion. It is really. I mean, we have writings, but the problem is they're very complicated and very difficult and they're kind of written with the view that the person reading them knows what's going on. So, for example, some of the pyramids have texts inside them and you think these would be really helpful and they are. But they're so complicated and they're referring to archaic rituals that we don't know what they're talking about, that we we sort of go, whoa, that is so complicated. How do we fit this into our understanding? Whereas with the archaeology and and the the temple architecture, it is much easier for us to to have a a reconstruction of the past. But we do really have to pull all these forms of evidence together. But somebody has said that trying to understand Egyptian religion from just reading the writings is a bit like trying to understand Christianity from reading a hymn book. You know, it's it's that difficult because the people writing expect us to know what's going on. So would you say that there was perhaps an oral tradition as well as a written tradition in ancient Egypt? Oh, yes, definitely. Most people couldn't read and write. Most people would rely on the oral tradition to to have things passed on. Probably about 10% of the population as we get towards the end of the dynastic age, nearly all men. But also, a lot of the religion that went on was actually within the home. I mean, we have these big temples and we kind of assume that people went off to the temple, maybe not on a Sunday, like we might go to church, but, you know, something similar, but they didn't. The big temples were not places of mass worship at all. They were the place where the king worshipped on behalf of the people. They didn't have a congregation. So for most people, the the prime place for worship and where they would learn about worship, I think, would be in the home. And it'd be led by the parents. And it might be something like ancestor worship or going off to the tombs and, and giving offerings to the dead family members and so on. So you would learn about it also from your parents rather than learning about it from an official priesthood. Does the sense that these people were worshipping in their own homes indicate that the gods they were worshipping there were of lesser significance than perhaps the ones that were being worshipped in the temples by the pharaoh? I think it depends how you define significance. Certainly to those people, they were the important gods. But if you want to have a sort of a hierarchy of gods, if you like, maybe call it a pyramid of gods because it seems appropriate, you would have at the top level, you would have the state gods. The great gods like Ray, the sun god, and Ammon and Isis, and they are primarily worshipped by the king. And the king does this on behalf of the people. He's the only Egyptian, technically, who can communicate between the gods and the people. And he worships them. If you, you might have noticed, if you look at pictures of Egyptian temples, that the pictures on the walls all show the king making the offerings because technically that's what happened. Actually, in in real life, of course, the king couldn't make every offering in every temple in Egypt because there were way too many of them, and some of these gods needed offerings every hour. So he had priests who helped him, but in theory at least, those gods were worshipped by the king, and nobody else needed to really concern themselves about them. Then you have a kind of lower tier of local gods who might have a local temple, who are very important in their own area, but less important to the whole state. And below them, you would have sort of lesser gods again, maybe what we might call demigods, people like the god Bess, who was really important to women in labour, and Tawaret, the same, important to women in labour, but not gods who have te- who have temples, who are worshipped, you know, by the king necessarily. And you would have ancestor worship, 
and you might have a sort of a specific god that a family revered that was was very important to them. So I think it's difficult to say who was important and who wasn't. But if you're looking at the whole of the Egyptian state and which gods was believed to affect the running of the state, then it would be the great temple gods, the great state gods, who were the important ones. And that leads us on to a question we've received from the Golden from Golden on Instagram, who asks, did the things that the gods were patrons over change throughout Egyptian history? They did. I and mean, what we have to remember is that Egyptian history lasts for, well, the dynastic history, from the, from the point where Egypt becomes one land to the point where Cleopatra dies, it's over 3,000 years, and things change. But there were also different in different regions, so different regions would emphasise different aspects of, of the god that they were worshipping. A good example of that, actually, is the goddess Hathor. And we can see her at the beginning of the dynastic age. She's really important, far more important than Isis. But gradually, as the dynastic age progresses, she becomes less important and Isis kind of takes over. And it's very interesting as we can start, step back and see that happening. So by the end of the dynastic age, Hathor is, is really not negligible, but she's not nothing like as important as she was, whereas Isis is the great survivor, and she goes on to be a significant cult in the Roman world as well. The Adventures of Simeon would like to know, why were cats so important to the ancient Egyptians? Well, this is an interesting question because we always assume that they were. And of course, the, the, the Egyptians did have cats. They used them for hunting. They were important to them. But in religious terms, really, this happens quite late in the dynastic age, at the point where they're having a lot of influence from Greek and Rome. And we find cats being associated with the goddess Bast or Bastet. And because they're linked to her cult, the classical writers tell us that cats were very much revered and they couldn't be harmed. And if anyone harmed a cat, they would suffer terrible penalties. We don't know how true this is because this is what the classical writers are writing for their readers. But we do know that cats were given, mummified cats were given to the goddess as an offering. So we have entire catacombs, appropriately named, cemeteries for cat mummies, which were created and offered as offerings to, to the gods. They weren't pets, these, these cats. They were, they were raised specially to become these offerings. So they were important and because of this link to the gods, but they weren't always of that great importance. It is very much towards the end of the dynastic age. Some of the temples were like zoos. They had like ibises and, and other animals there as well, which would be mummified. And as pilgrims, I suppose pilgrims is the right word, would go to the temple. They might buy a mummified animal to leave behind as an offering to the gods. You didn't, you didn't necessarily take your own. You would actually buy it ready wrapped. And some of these have been un unwrapped or have been x-rayed by experts. And you can see inside, actually, that it's not necessarily an entire animal. Sometimes there's just part of an animal inside that. And we have two ways of thinking about this. Either the people who were selling these mummified animals to the pilgrims were ripping them off. They weren't really giving them what they paid for. Or maybe just a little tiny bit of a cat or a bird was enough to, to serve as the offering for the god. We don't, we don't know, or, or maybe both. Hebeyoung99 on Instagram and Naomi Warwick on Facebook have asked if the legacy of ancient Egyptian religion can be traced anywhere in our contemporary culture. Yes, I think it can, particularly in art, I would say. You find elements of re Egyptian re religion, even crossing into to Christianity, particularly in images of the Virgin Mary and the infant Jesus, very similar to images that were produced of, of the goddess Isis and the infant Horus. But in a less direct way, 
Things like temple architecture is very much picked up in the Art Deco period. So we actually get things like our cinemas, or where I live near Manchester, the Trafford Centre, actually in a way looks like an Egyptian temple. There are Egyptianizing bits in there. The statuary as well, people people have used the forms of it to make jewellery. People even have Egyptian religion-formed tattoos these days. And of course, we shouldn't forget that there are still some people who, who still worship the ancient Egyptian gods and goddesses. The cults aren't entirely dead, even today. Although I'm not saying that they've continued from the dynastic age. It's something that's, that's a fairly recent development. But there are people who still revere those, these deities today. Is there any evidence of these cults enduring an unbroken thread from ancient times to the present day? I don't think so. The cult of Isis was probably the longest lasting one, and it does seem to fade out again. But there are there are today people who worship Isis, there are people who worship the goddess Sekhmet, and so on. It's not common, but it exists. Elizabeth Duncan Lee on Instagram asks if there are any parallels between ancient Egyptian beliefs and Christianity. I don't think that there are parallels. The one thing that people always highlight is the fact that Jesus died and Christian Belize was reborn and that the god Osiris in Egyptian religion dies. But having this idea of death and rebirth is actually found in many religions, not just Egyptian. And I would have said that the parallels with Christianity aren't great in that we know that Jesus was an actual real person, whereas, of course, Osiris wasn't. He was a mythological person. So I would say that no, if we exclude this, this thing that happens in a lot of religions about um, the ideas of being reborn after death. So I would say no, but I would say, again, in the art, um, particularly um, early art, images of the Virgin Mary and Jesus may be influenced by images of Isis um, and Horus. They're, they're very common images of Isis and Horus. So that might have been an influence on the artist. But I think beyond that, there's not that much of an influence, to be honest. So I think what we're looking at is probably ideas that were around the Mediterranean area and, and North Africa at this time that are being picked up by different people and being replicated rather than saying that one is directly influencing the other, if, if that makes sense. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out 
with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. The next question is from Sito underscore 83 on Instagram, who wants to know, how did ordinary people worship in ancient Egypt? And is there any evidence of what they thought about religion? Ordinary people have left us some evidence of what they think about. Um, we have scribbled writings, which we call ostraca, which which will refer to things. For example, we have mentions of someone who was struck blind because he thought that he defended the goddess and was trying to correct this. We also have a lot of funerary information, but this doesn't belong to the very ordinary people, the peasant level, because at the peasant level, these people don't read and write and they don't have elaborate tombs either. They're just buried in pit graves in the desert. So we really don't know what they thought. What we're looking at here is kind of the middle classes. And we can find things like artefacts from their houses, um, for example, heads, which we interpret as ancestor heads, um, sculptures, not actual heads. So we imagine that they're being used in some sort of ritual. We know that they participated in, in festivals. There's a site called Daryl Medina where the workmen who worked in the Valley of the Kings lived with their families. And they've left us quite a few records because they were actually a very literate community. They were quite unusual. And we can see that they actually had time off work to celebrate religious festivals when the great state gods would come out of the temples and would process around and then would go back into the temple again. So they participated in that sort of thing. There would be festivals in the cemeteries where they communicated with the dead people and they would also have quite a regular routine of going to the cemetery, leave offering to their dead ancestors as well. So there were a variety of ways that you could do worship, but the, the one thing that you really wouldn't do is go and be part of a congregation somewhere um, like many people today do. It wasn't like that. It was far more up to the individual to do it, to observe whatever they wanted to do. There was no right or wrong because there is no Bible or, or Bible equivalent. There is no right or wrong. There is no way. And the state didn't really care what people believed. You weren't expected to believe anything. You could believe what you wanted as long as you didn't cause trouble. That was absolutely fine. Sandy.Sizely1 has asked... How was Egypt affected by the spread of monotheistic religions? Egypt was home to actually quite a large Jewish population by the end of the dynastic age. Certainly at the time when Cleopatra was ruling for Alexandria, there was a really large Jewish population in Alexandria. I think it was the second largest in the world at the time. And that worked well. Obviously, the Jews being monotheistic weren't interested in the Egyptian religion, but the Egyptians, because they would accept many gods, were happy to live alongside. They didn't see the Jews as being particularly wrong. They just saw them as being different. Christianity, however, was a different matter. When Christianity was brought to Egypt by the Romans, the Roman emperors eventually decided that this would become the official religion of the Roman Empire, and they actually closed down the state temples. And that did then have a big effect because obviously with the state temples, the traditional temples closed and people prevented from following the traditional religion, then that was the end of the, the traditional religion in Egypt. So Christianity eventually brought the end of the traditional Egyptian religion. So there was no evidence of perhaps these thieves coming in and persecuting the old beliefs? No. I think if you didn't believe what the Roman emperors wanted you to believe, you were in trouble. But the pharaoh didn't really care what the people believed. The pharaoh would do the, the worshipping that the pharaoh had to do, and that was all that mattered. As long as the pharaoh conducted the rituals that would keep Egypt going, what the ordinary people were doing didn't really matter. I mean, it would be good if they behaved themselves and and 
behave like decent people, but it wasn't paramount. It was the behaviour of the pharaoh that really mattered, and he sort of acted. And to a certain extent, the queen acted for, for, for all women as he was acting for all men. It was them and their relationship with the gods that really mattered. That leads us on nicely to a question we've received from Waterfist on Instagram, um, who asks, did the Egyptians see the pharaoh as an actual deity? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I would say that during his lifetime, technically he wasn't a deity, but he was very close to it. He was the one person who communicated with the gods. So he was in a really, really privileged position. He made all the offerings. But he would do things like create big statues, which would be put outside the temples because the ordinary people didn't go into the state temples, but they could look at the big statues outside the state temples. And I suspect that the ordinary people got a, got quite confused and saw a massive statue of the king outside a massive temple. And maybe some of them, yes, maybe they did think that the, the king was a living god. And um, I don't think anyone really did anything to disabuse them of this. When the king died, he definitely was a god. He became one with the god Osiris. And I think many people have seen the funerary masks, for example, Tutankhamun's funerary mask, which is actually a face of the god Osiris to remind us that the dead king is then a divinity. What was the Amarna revolution and how did Akhenaten change religion in ancient Egypt? The Amarna revolution was a very odd blip in the continuation of Egyptian theology, which has stayed pretty much, I mean, it, it, it was evolving, it always evolved, but it didn't have any really marked change from, from about 3100 BCE till 30 BCE, apart from about 25 years, starting in about 1356 BCE, when the pharaoh that we call Akhenaten came to the throne. And I've already said that the king had the responsibility to make all the offerings to the gods, which meant he had to invest in all the cults. He might have his favourites. We could tell that some kings had a favourite god and, 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 and you know, it would vary from, from king to king. But he technically was responsible for all the cults. Akhenaten was only really interested in one god and it was a very obscure god. It wasn't a new god, been around, but it was an obscure god called the Aten. He even changed his name so that Aten was in his name. Um, and it was a solar disk that hung in the sky and shone down its light on the royal family. And this was, it's quite often interpreted as monotheism. It's not really monotheism because monotheism is just the belief in one God. He didn't get rid of all the old gods, but he did prune some out. The ones he didn't like, he, he persecuted their cults and closed their temples. He was fairly happy with gods related to sun worship. And for about 17 years, this continued. He built a new city. He made the elite courtiers go to this city. He also made lots of workmen go to this city and their families so they could build the new city. There was only one god worshipped in the city. There were big temples to worship the Aten. This was a bit of a disaster for the ordinary people who for centuries had believed in the traditional gods. The main problem was that because the god Osiris had been not banished, but just didn't exist anymore. The tombs don't show images of Osiris. It means that the dead elite Egyptians are no longer going to have an afterlife with the god Osiris in the fields of reeds. Their afterlife has been taken away from them. And during the reign of Akhenaten, at least it's believed that the dead will just haunt their own tombs at night and will maybe go out to the Aten temple during the day. But it's a very unpleasant afterlife existence. It was a religion that offered very little to the ordinary people. It was all about the king and his family. 
And it seems quite clear from the art that's left to us and the writings that Akhenaten was using it to promote himself and his wife Nefertiti and their daughters to the role of, of living gods because you had to worship the sun, even though you're in Egypt and you could think you could just go out into a field and stand there and worship the sun. You couldn't. You had to do it in a certain control conditions in a temple or in front of a statue or an image of the royal family. And he was using it as a way of boosting the divinity of the royal family and excluding others at the same time. It didn't last because when he died and his cult ended, Tutankhamun came to the throne. He just converted Egypt back again to the old religion and things pretty much carried on as before. That itself is a bit odd because Tutankhamun had been born during the Aten Age and didn't know anything about the old religion. He was obviously being guided by his advisors. But this little blip is very odd. The fact he was able to do this shows the power of the pharaoh, but the fact also that it reverted back shows how really the people weren't able to adapt to any other way of religion other than the traditional one. That leads us on nicely to a question we've received on Twitter from Susie1340. And they'd like to know, how do we know anything about Akhenaten's religious revolution, considering that his successors expunged all memory of his reign? His successors did try and expunge all mention of his reign. They didn't really want to be associated with him. Tutankhamun in particular didn't particularly want to be associated with him. The kings who came after didn't want to be associated with him because he wasn't considered to be a success. And they did this by just cutting him out of history. So where they recorded the list of kings, they just didn't put his name in. But there is enough still remaining. They weren't thorough in this. And particularly if we go to Amarna City, the remains of Amarna City, which was never built over... So there's an awful lot of archaeology still there. It's being excavated. It's been excavated for years, but it's still currently being excavated by Professor Barry Kemp. And they're finding all sorts of, of really, really interesting information about daily life, about religious life. And this is allowing us to piece together our understanding of the Amarna period. The, the slight problem is, though, we have all this information from Amarna, so we can see very much the focus on the art and religion and Akhenaten's behaviour. But we have much less information from outside that city. So we have less idea of what actually is going on in the other cities where we have this great focus on Artanism at Amarna. A few listeners would like to know if there were any coexisting religions alongside the state religion throughout Egypt's 3,000 plus year history. Well, I've mentioned Judaism, which existed at the end. Um, it would be difficult for us to know because it wouldn't be a problem. So if you were a foreigner who came into Egypt and settled you would be perfectly free to continue with your own religious beliefs. It wouldn't be a problem, but it might not necessarily be recorded in the archaeological record. And unless you deliberately wrote about it, we wouldn't know about it. But as, as far as we're aware, it's it's not a problem. Um, it's often said, though, it's, it's interesting, it's often said that ancient Egyptian religion isn't itself a religion. It's a collection of cults. And if we think about it like this, as a collection of cults all being controlled by the king, then you can see that bringing in another religion would just almost be like popping another cult in there. And as long as it wasn't actually seen as, as damaging in any way, anti-Egyptian, then it would be absolutely acceptable and you would just get on with what you were doing. Tommy O'Mac would like to know, did the concept of atheism exist in ancient Egypt? It's very difficult for us to know this because someone would actually have to, I think, write it down to let us know that they're an atheist. And of course, most people couldn't read and write and most writings of the people who could read and write haven't survived anyway. So we have no information on this. I strongly doubt it because of the fact that 
Egyptian religion is serving as their science. It's their explanation as to how they're living their lives, what's making the sun go up, what's making the country tick, what's protecting the country from danger. And I think there would be just too much to, to not believe, if that makes sense. But I suspect that some people believed at different levels and, and different understandings, that not everyone would have had the same understanding of the gods. Some people would have regarded them in one way and other people would have regarded them in another way. But I think at the end of the day, I think most people would have had some sort of belief. But as I say, we don't know. That's just me guessing, I'm afraid. Monica Devalu asks, would the ancient Egyptians have considered the unwrapping of a mummy blasphemous? I don't think they would consider it to be blasphemy, but I'm not sure they'd have necessarily considered it to be a good idea. Having said that, the Egyptians themselves did unwrap mummies. Um, and they would unwrap them and then rewrap them again. So it's not something that is actually banned. There's a, a lot of this happened in the Valley of the Kings, actually, at the end of what we call the New Kingdom, when the royal tombs were, were being attacked by thieves and they were open and the royal burials were in a, in a, in a lot of disarray and a great mess. The priest came in, stripped down the mummies, took off all the valuables and wrapped them up again and then stored them in caches of mummies in, in the Valley of the Kings. They did this, they would say, I think, to protect the mummies because once all the valuables had been taken off them, they wouldn't attract robbers. But you could also say they were doing it to recycle the grave goods. You know, it, it's again, it depends how you looked at it. So the Egyptians themselves weren't averse to unwrapping mummies, but I think they would want there to be a point to it. Conservation and restoring things were always seen as a very good thing for the Egyptians. So they would be happy with that. Just wantonly unwrapping a mummy I think they would have a problem with because their religious belief told them that for the spirit to survive in the afterlife the body also had to survive in a recognisable form on earth and that's why they did mummification so anything that might damage the mummy and mean that it wasn't recognisable to the spirit might endanger the afterlife of the dead person and I think for that reason they wouldn't be too happy with it unless it was necessary. You mentioned the afterlife there. Susan Barker on Facebook would like to know, what did the ancient Egyptians imagine the afterlife to be like? It would depend, I think, when you lived. But increasingly, as the dynastic age carries on, we're learning more about what they expect to happen. From a middle-class sort of New Kingdom-type point of view, after about 1550 BCE, we have scrolls put into the tombs which, which show us that the middle-class Egyptians expect after they've been mummified. And we have to remember that mummification is not just a means of tidying up the body. It itself is a religious ritual. So when you're mummified, you have to have the right rituals going on. You have to have a, a, a good funeral. Once that's happened, your spirit will be able to travel to the land of the dead. You'll be questioned and you'll have to go through a few ordeals. But if all goes to plan and if you have a good book of the dead with you this will help you because it's a guidebook you will eventually be judged pure in heart and you will enter the field of reeds or the kingdom of osiris and when you're there you will then be expected to work for the god osiris and there are pictures of this on tomb walls and some people look quite happy and some people look slightly less happy if you didn't want to do the work you had the ability to take servant figures to the tomb with you shabti figures we call them and they would do the work for you, you'd say a spell, and they would do the work for you. And that would probably make the afterlife far more pleasant. 
if you're a king, it was a bit different. If you're a king, you would become divine. You would become one with the gods and you might either fuse with the god of the dead, Osiris, or the sun god, Ray. You might help him sail in his boat, both through the sky during the day and then through the underworld at night when he has to fight off demons and so on. Or you might become a star. So different options for different people at different times. Interestingly, we have far less idea of what women would expect for the afterlife because it seems all very well for a bloke to merge with Osiris, but it seems a bit odd for a woman to do this. And it's only quite late on that we find mentions of women merging with Hathor rather than merging with Osiris. So there's a bit of work to be done there until we fully understand actually what women expected of the afterlife. How much did the myths, rituals, temple architecture and all other aspects related to religion in ancient Egypt change over the centuries? Oh, they changed a great deal, but slowly. So you wouldn't necessarily, unless you were around in the Amarna period where the change was very sudden and were very abrupt and must have been really shocking to the, the people of Egypt. If you were um, living, you know, in a village in the Nile Delta, you probably wouldn't notice the change. But if you could go back over the generations, you would see things evolving. The earliest temples, for example, seem to be quite open-air structures, maybe made of reeds, or there's some evidence of, of trees being included in, in, in worship sites and so on. And eventually they become more substantial temples and eventually they become the stone temples that we recognise today. And in fact, a lot of the temples that we do recognise are built quite late on in the Greco-Roman period by Cleopatra and her father and their, their ancestors. So they're actually quite late Greco-Roman style temples. If we look at a big temple like the Karnak Temple of Ammon, that's interesting because you see lots of different building phases and you can see it expanding in different directions as people add things onto it. So definitely there would be a huge amount of change there. And, and I suspect that would happen with all sorts of, you know, the rituals within the temple. If we could see them, they would be evolving too. It's just difficult for us to see it. Even the appearance of the gods and goddesses changes um, in the statues and in their art as we look at them. For example, I've already mentioned Hathor, but increasingly Isis and Hathor come to look very, very similar. Um, again, it's an evolution in how people are portrayed. So yes, a lot of change, I think, but not necessarily obvious to the people living at the time. How many gods and goddesses were there? And who are some of the more significant ones? I would say well over a thousand, but it is difficult because sometimes a god can have several names and sometimes gods come together to form a sort of compound god. And sometimes very odd things like inanimate objects can be treated as a god. So, for example, a birthing brick. Birthing bricks are what women squatted on when they're in labour, but there is a, a deity that actually looks like a, a birthing brick. So it seems that almost anything in ancient Egypt could be worshipped. I would say well over a thousand, and I know that that's slightly ducking out of the, the question, but it's such a difficult question. But again, not all at the same time. There were changes in fashion for some of these gods. They, they, they rose in fashion and then they disappeared again. The ones um, I think that most people are familiar with are the, the, the family of Isis and Osiris. Osiris, the god of the dead, and Isis, his wife and their brother and sister, because Isis and Osiris are brother and sister, they also have brothers and sisters, Seth and Nephthys. So this is a, a family of, of four, and they are the children of gods. And they're right at the beginning of time. And I think they're the ones that today, really, people are most interested in. Then we have Horus, who is the son of Isis and Osiris. Um, he looks like a hawk. It's quite interesting because these, although they, these are 
gods who are parents to other gods. They don't look like each other. So Osiris looks like a mummy, Isis looks like a woman, but Horus is a hawk. We have Sobek, who looks like a crocodile. Quite often they have animal form in them. I think it's important to say here that I don't imagine that the Egyptians themselves imagine the gods looking like a man with a crocodile head or looking, in the case of Hathor, with like a woman with a cow head. I think this is how the artists depicted the gods, that they wanted to show the nature of the gods. So they would show a human body which was capable of sitting on a throne or holding offerings or presenting things. And then they would put an animal head on which would show the nature of the person. I don't know if that makes sense. It kind of reminds me of like on Doctor Who recently when they have monsters and they've sort of gone to going like basically a boiler suit with an with a head on. Um, <laughs> and you're, I think you're expected to imagine the whole monster. You're not supposed to imagine that it, this is what the actual monster looks like. It's kind of the same thing that the artists are struggling to convey to us. And remember, not everyone can read and write, so you can't explain it in writing. They want you to look at this image of the, of the goddess Hathor you could show her as a cow, but that's not allowing her to do things like sit on a throne or interact very well with the king. You could show her as a woman, but that's sort of denying her cow-like nature as well. So you sort of combine the two, but you don't have to imagine that this is how people themselves imagine the goddess to be. The classical authors who visited Egypt and wrote about the religion and other classical people back home tended to see Egyptian religion as being very basic. Basically, they worshipped animals. And actually, it's far more subtle and complex than that. They're not just worshipping animals. They're worshipping maybe a cow-like essence in the form of a woman. It's far more complicated. It's very difficult for us to understand it because we don't have it explained to us. We're picking it up from archaeology and um, from writings, and and it's difficult for us. But I think we have consistently underestimated how complex this, this situation is. Did the ancient Egyptians have a creation story? They had lots of creation stories. This is a really good example of how different places had different approaches to religion at different times. There's the, a creation story that at the beginning of the world there was water everywhere and the waters were very still and silent. Then suddenly there was a sort of eruption and an island popped up and there was a god on this island and this god Artum then created, first of all, the gods and then the people. But there are other stories. There's a very advanced story um, connected to the cult of the god Tar of Memphis which tells us he was able to create by using the spoken word, which is actually quite an advanced idea. There's the idea that um, the potter god, Knum, who's a ram-headed god, creates people by on his potter's wheel, and he creates people and he also creates their spirits or souls at the same time. So there are lots of different stories, and this was, this was not a problem to the Egyptians. You could pick what you wanted to believe, but depending where you lived, you would probably just be told one story. And you would be happy with that. But then if you moved to a, a neighbouring city and they had a different belief, that, that would be fine too. None of these were exclusive. And I imagine in families, people maybe picked up on elements of both. Are those stories consistent throughout the entire archaeological record? No, they develop. Again, they start off quite basic. I mean, it is again, it's difficult for us to tell because we're relying on things like the pyramid texts, which are very short, very complicated religious spells or utterances. They're not telling the whole story. But we can see that at the beginning that we don't really know much about Isis and Osiris. 
by the time you get about halfway through the dynastic age, there's more of a story there. We know that Isis defended her husband when he was attacked. But it's not till we get right to the end and classical writers start to write these things down that we get the full story of Isis and Osiris that a lot of people will have heard of, that he is attacked by his brother Seth, who kills him, who puts him in a coffin. He's found by his wife Isis and brought back to life. He's chopped up again by his brother and bandaged. Yeah, it, 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 there's a very, very long story there. And we can tell from that very long later story that it's actually picking up elements of other mythology from the Mediterranean world. So it's got um, foreign inclusions added into it that old Kingdom Egyptians, Egyptians from the Pyramid Age, wouldn't recognise at all in the same story. And I imagine this happened to stories throughout the canon. How did Egyptian temples function? How powerful were priests? And who worked within the temples? Again, this is a really interesting question. I, I, there are two ways to approach it. The first way that it functions is that we have to regard it as the home of the god in a very, very literal sense. So the god would lived in the temple in the form of a statue and the god would be woken up in the morning, taken out of his bedroom, or it's probably more like a cupboard, but would be dressed, would be given makeup, would be given offerings of food and incense and drink and so on, would have rituals performed during the day and would be basically put to bed at night. So in that real way, it was the home of the god and the god was in the innermost part, the most private part, just like in a home, you know, you go into a home and you get to the private part, usually the furthest away from the door. So there was that aspect to it. But there was also the aspect to it that the temples were important economic institutions. They owned a lot of land. They owned assets such as boats and quarries and so on. I suppose you could regard them as tax collectors. They had warehouses. They, they stored grain. They were a useful resource if there were problems. You know, if the Nile didn't rise properly or if, it, if there was too much flooding, then you could draw on the temple resources. And they were financed by offerings from the king. So his offerings were used to pay the priests and then were stored if there was anything left over. And of course, because they owned assets, they could they could tax the assets as well. So there were two ways that they worked. Um, they didn't have a congregation, so there was no need for people to necessarily look after the people. But they were huge. They had things like slaughterhouses. They had artists employed. They had sculptors employed. A lot of people worked there. The priests themselves, it depended on the, the level of the temple. For a great state temple, it would probably be hereditary position. Your father was a priest, you would become a priest. In smaller local temples, it's more likely that people worked on a rota system, that they had so many weeks on as a priest and then went away so many weeks off. It wasn't what you'd call a vocation, though. We find people being priests, then going off to do other things, like also being soldiers and so on. And in a way, anybody could be a priest because when your parents were dead, if you made offerings to them, you were yourself acting as a priest. So even at the lowest level, people could act as a priest. Men could act as a priest. It's better to have a man do it, although there were women who worked in temples as too, but it's, it's mainly male-focused. Um, so there are different ways of approaching it. But for the big priestly families, then it was very much hereditary. And they worked sort of in parallel to the king and controlled these great assets. What was the Book of the Dead? And why did the Egyptians invest so much in death? The Egyptians believed that after death, they could live again. They didn't always believe this. At the very beginning of the dynastic age, they thought they could live again, but not leave the tomb. 
So it was a sort of halfway thing. So they tried to build massive tombs and fill them full of grave goods that they could use because they knew they'd be in the tomb to the end of time. But gradually, it became accepted that elite people who had the right rituals and knew what to do could leave the tomb and could go and live in a different land, the land of Osiris or the field of reeds. But they needed help to get there. So first of all, they wrote instructions on their coffins. We call those coffin texts. And then as we get into the New Kingdom, um, the time of empire, which starts in about 1550 BCE, they don't have it written on their coffins. They actually have books. By books, I mean a scroll. I don't mean a book like we would open it today, but, but a scroll, which has got a description of the journey and how to behave on it and pictures of what will happen along the way. And it's really, it's sort of... Um, it's a set of notes that will help you to get to, you, to your objective. It will tell you what to say if you're questioned. So you don't actually have had to live a particularly good life. What you have to do is be buried with the Book of the Dead. And that will guide you through the trial in the court of Osiris and you'll be able to, to make it to your eternal afterlife, which is what you want. Why they invested so much? I think it's fear to a great extent. They didn't know what would happen next, but People died so young and, and death was such a, an ever-present aspect of, of, of daily life. So I think they, they really, really wanted to believe that something would come next and they developed this huge story to support it and this huge industry as well. I mean, not everyone was mummified. Most people weren't. Most people couldn't afford it. But if you were a middle-class type Egyptian or, or upwards, you probably would want to be mummified if you could afford it. And it would be quite expensive and also... Um, very much consuming of, of textiles. If you if you had a family, you know, and three or four people died quite close together, you'd expect to supply linen for their funerals. It, it could be a really, really difficult situation, very, very expensive. They could, of course, have stopped. This is the odd thing. We know because some of the earliest bodies to be buried in Egypt were just buried in the hot desert sands. And because the hot desert sands are sterile and because they would leach the sort of liquid that comes from, from the dead body away, these bodies were naturally preserved. So actually, if the Egyptians wanted to naturally preserve their bodies, they could have just done this by burying them in the desert sand, but they didn't want to do that. They liked the idea of mummification. I think it's maybe that they wanted to ensure that the body stayed as, as a sort of under control, if you like, and once the undertakers got the idea that this was the ritual, it was very difficult to break away from it. But I think it's very interesting that they didn't actually need to go down this route. Why did they want to preserve the body? Well, they, it's this belief that I've already talked about, that you could only have an afterlife if you had a recognisable body left in, in the living Egypt. So they wanted it to be recognisable and the mummy allowed them to do that. Is there any evidence of when mummification became the norm in ancient Egypt? It slowly comes in. Um, the earliest, at the very beginning of the dynastic age, people are being buried, sort of curled up, not not straightened out, um, just in a pit grave. And they, they might have some property with them, but not a great deal. And increasingly, as they start to want to be buried with more and more property, and we assume that the mythology is developing at the time that it is possible to live on in the tomb, so you want stuff with you, then you've got to have room for it. But as soon as you start making tombs, essentially, rather than graves full of sand. As soon as you start separating the body, for example, you might want to put the body in a coffin because it just looks nicer than shoveling sand on top of someone. It would protect the body. But on the other hand, it's separating them from the sand and then they start to decay. So you're sort of causing a problem for yourself. 
And yet they don't want to abandon the idea of being buried with an awful lot of grave goods because they think that they might be trapped in the tomb for eternity. So they need to do that. So they go scientifically to find a way of, of overcoming this. And by the time they get to the point where it's recognised that people can leave the tomb and they can go to the field of reeds, it's become such an ingrained tradition to take grave goods with you that they don't, again, they don't break away from it. It may be a bit of a belt and braces situation that they think, well, hopefully I will leave this tomb. I've got my book of the dead. I won't be trapped in this tomb forever. But just in case I am, I'm taking all this property with me. I mean, even Tutankhamun, he's got so much stuff with him and you wonder why. Because Tutankhamun expected really to either become one with Osiris or one with the sun god Ray, or to become a star or maybe something we don't know about. He didn't expect to linger in that tomb and yet he took food and drink and, you know, all sorts of stuff with him. Very interesting. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the most important cult centres around Egypt? There were various cult centres. Um, the interesting thing, I think, first of all, to point out is that not all gods actually had a cult centre. And some quite important gods um, didn't. For example, the god goddess Tawaret, I've mentioned already, very important to pregnant women. And we find her referenced in the royal family and sort of quite humble levels of society, but she doesn't have a temple at all. Where you have a cult temple, it seems that they developed at the very beginning of the dynastic age and just continue to grow and grow. The one that particularly interests me, I think, is is the, the, is the Bydos, which is a huge cemetery, but is also a cult centre for the god of the dead, Osiris, although we only have reference in, to him being buried there slightly, slightly later on. But these cult centres then, again, become economic institutions. They attract pilgrims who go to see festivals and processions, and I've mentioned they will buy stuff and leave offerings and so on. And it becomes a huge thing. I think in this instance, it's okay to think of like medieval cathedrals. They weren't just places of worship. They they fulfilled other functions as well. And I think the situation in Egypt would have been very much like that. What are the three main points that define religion in ancient Egypt? That's such a difficult question. And I've, I've had to think long and hard about this to come up with any sort of sensible answer because there's so much that is unique about ancient Egyptian religion and quite frankly, fascinating. But I've come up with three things. And I think the first one is perhaps the flexibility. That there is no dogma, there's no Bible or Bible equivalent, there's no code of behaviour. And this means that it's very accepting. You can believe what you want and you won't be wrong. And we don't find those in a lot of religions. And the state is quite happy to let people believe what they want to believe. There's there's no way you can be a heretic. Sometimes the pharaoh Akhenaten is known as the heretic pharaoh because he believed in primarily one god, the Aten. But he's not a heretic because it's impossible to be a heretic because there is no right and wrong way of believing. And this leads to different levels of society behaving in a different way when it comes to religion. You get the king representing everybody and communicating with the great state gods. You get the sort of middle classes, going to, supporting local temples, worshipping ancestors, and you get the lower levels of society, which we don't really know what they believed in religion and what even they expected to happen after death. But I think that flexibility is a really interesting thing. And it's something that we quite often forget. When we think about ancient Egyptian religion, it's easy just to think that everybody is worshipping the same nine or ten gods, and it's just not that case at all. The second one is, I've, I've 
called it regional variation, but I also mean time variation. The way it changes from place to place and over time. So you can get the same God being worshipped in different places in different ways. A good example of this is the crocodile god Sobek, who is worshipped rather strangely both in southern Egypt, right at the tip of, of, the, of, the, of the nation, but is also worshipped much further north in the Fayum, and is hardly worshipped anywhere else at all. Presumably this is because um, where Sobek is worshipped is strong connections with water and crocodiles might be a problem there. But this, this again, this variation, this changing nature of it, it's not just the same gods and goddesses all the time. It's the gods and goddesses who are important to the people who lived in a certain place at a certain time. It's something, again, that it's very difficult for us to pick up on. And it sounds quite remote, but I think it's quite important to remember we can't expect over 3,000 years of the dynastic age that worship was exactly the same. And I think if somebody from Cleopatra's reign were to go right the way back, to be able to go right the way back to the point where Egypt became one land, they would be absolutely astonished if they saw the religious practices that were going on. Um, my third one is, is possibly actually the most important one, and that's the link between the king and the gods. And I've mentioned this a few times, that the king is the one Egyptian, in theory, who is able to talk to the great state gods and who they'll listen to all the time. Because of this, he is responsible for making the offerings to them. Nobody else can do this. This is why we see him on temple walls and nobody else, even though we know that that's the theory and in practice that the rituals are done by his deputies, his priests. So he does this and in return... The gods offer him and Egypt support. So as long as he continues to give them um, what they want, they will give him what he wants. It's a reciprocal relationship. So we have images of kings and gods making offerings to each other. An important concept that is involved in this is the concept of mart. And mart is a very difficult word to translate into English, but the opposite of mart is isfet, and that means chaos. So if you like, Mart is anti-chaos. It's what the Egyptians really wanted. It's a combination of rightness and things being how they should be and justice and status quo. So if you can get that in the country, the gods are happy and everything functions as it should be. And we have Mart can also be a little goddess, um, it's a personification of this concept of Mart. So we have kings who are offering to the gods and we have gods who are supporting the king because of the offerings. And because of this, I think, there is no serious attempt to stop having a king on the throne for 3,000 years of the dynastic age because the danger of removing the king, the one person who could talk to the gods, would be just too great because if you got rid of the king, what would happen? Nobody knows. You know, would it mean that if the solar temples didn't make the offerings, would the sun god not be able to rise up on the horizon and come across the sky? What would happen at night when he went away and fought the enemies? We wouldn't know because he's not being supported by the offerings because the king's not doing this. So this becomes really, really important. I'm not saying that kings weren't assassinated. We know that occasionally they were. But there was never an attempt to get rid of the king um, as a, the monarchy as a concept. They were assassinated, but there was almost a king ready to step into their place. 
And I think that's why. I think the gods are supporting the king in the way that the king is supporting the gods. And I think this is what makes dynastic civilization last for so long and be so um, recognisable. The religion, the religious thoughts do change from place to place and time to time, but this underlying idea of the gods wanting something from the Egyptians and the Egyptians wanting something from the gods and it all being funneled through the king, I think is really important and probably the defining feature of Egyptian religion. That was Joyce Tildesley, author of The Penguin Book of Myths and Legends of Ancient Egypt and Nefertiti's Face, The Creation of an Icon. Joyce's most recent book, Tutankhamun, Pharaoh, Icon, Enigma, is out now, published by Headline. And Joyce was also one of the expert guests in our series all about Tutankhamun. You can listen to that all by searching for Tutankhamun on your podcast feeds. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.